0: Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, and Sweaten Live. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Tiso Blackstar Group or any of its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa, I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you may have noticed that we didn't start this week's episode with a sound clip from the case like we usually do. Well, in part, that's because today's case is 70 years old, and for some strange reason I found it terribly difficult to find a sound clip from that era. The other reason we didn't start with a sound clip from the case is because there was a sound clip of a different kind. Did you hear it? Let's listen again. True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live and Sowetan Live. No, this is not me playing wishful thinking. Do you remember last week I said that I had some really exciting news to share with you? Well, that is the news. As from the 1st of September 2019, True Crime South Africa is publishing in conjunction with the Tso Blackstar Group, who owns Times Live, Business Live, and Sowetan Live. I cannot tell you what an amazing opportunity this is for our show. So to give you some background, Times Live is the second biggest digital publishing news forum in South Africa. The company has their own stable of podcasts, which you can access on their website at timeslive.co.za. And for the next three months, True Crime South Africa is going to be hosted in this stable. To say that I'm blown away by the possibilities that this holds for the show is an understatement. As you know, this is a young podcast, so to be given this kind of opportunity so early on is a huge leap forward. I'm so grateful to Tiso Blackstar, and of course, to you, our listeners, for making this happen. So with that exciting announcement, let's move into the case that we're going to be covering this week and do the official welcome of You're Listening to True Crime South Africa and this is Episode 8, The Unsolved Murder of Jacoba Bubbles Schroeder. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information in our show notes. I first came across this case when I did one of my usual Google searches, Unsolved Murders, South Africa. I know, right? I like living on the edge, apparently. And up popped a News24 article on 10 historical unsolved South African murders. Jacoba Bubbles Schroeder was on the list, and I did a skim of the available online resources which is how I can tell up front if I'm going to be able to cover a case. There seemed to be a decent amount, so I set it aside to come back to later. Then one of our listeners, Amanda Nierenhuis, commented on our website suggesting that I cover the case. I was in two minds about covering a 70-year-old murder. Yes, there's still an interest factor, but can we really help bring awareness to a case this old, I wondered. So I started researching, and Jacoba Schroeder convinced me. Yes, I know that sounds a bit odd, but when you hear the story, you'll understand why I say this. While Jacoba's story captivated me, I had no idea when I started researching this a few weeks back that the thread that winds its way through this case would stitch through time and reappear At the very time I prepare to release this episode. Violence against women. It's an issue that I can't really say reared its ugly head in the last few weeks because, honestly, it's never rested its hideous head. But we've all been talking a lot about it in the last few weeks due to the horrendous string of murders that have been in the media. And now I know, why Jacoba's story spoke to me so deeply that I felt I needed to share it with you. Yes, it's 70 years old, and me talking about it is not going to bring any resolution to the case, but there's another thing that I want to achieve with this podcast, and that is to give victims a voice, especially those victims who wouldn't ordinarily have one, and Jacoba definitely falls into that category. In researching this case, I used quite a few online sources, as well as a book called Famous South African Crimes by Rob Marsh. I'd like to thank listener Dew Solomon for sending me a copy of the book. I also read another book called Bubbles by Rala Xenopoulos. The book is more of a fictional account of the murder because there are so few confirmed facts, but it is a riveting read and I'll talk more about the book and its author later in the episode. Jacoba Bubbles Schroeder was born on the 8th of June 1931 in Lichtenburg. The town is situated 230 kilometers from Johannesburg, and in its heyday, it was a diamond mining town. But by the time Jacoba was born, the fuss had started to die down, and although many wealthy families remained the town was no longer the hub of activity it had once been. According to the blog Bygones and Byways, which I will reference in the show notes, Jacoba's maternal grandparents were German immigrants and arrived in South Africa in 1877. Jacoba's mother, Louise, married another child of German immigrants, Ernst Schroeder. This is the first example of the social class system which was a major factor during that period and would become a running theme through Jacoba's life and indeed her death. In those days, in choosing a partner, class was a major consideration. You did not marry or even court someone above or below your social class. If you were an immigrant labourer, you married an immigrant labourer. Jacoba's father is reported to have been an alcoholic and he didn't stay with his family for very long before abandoning them. By the time Jacoba was four years old, she was the child of a single mother who was struggling to survive. In the book Bubbles, Rolla Zinopoulos paints Jacoba's mother as a woman who had become bitter from the difficulties of life at a very early age, and found it difficult to show Jacoba any real affection. The family barely survived off money that Jacoba's mother made, doing washing and ironing for the richer families in town. It was no doubt a difficult start in life for the child, but Jacoba had one thing that set her apart from the other struggling immigrant children in her neighbourhood. She was exquisitely beautiful. People would often comment on the girl's otherworldly beauty, and it didn't take long for Jacoba to realise That she had something that others coveted. The information on this case is a mix of fact and supposition from fact, due to the huge length of time that has passed, and there are two different accounts of how Jacoba got her nickname, Bubbles. The first is a sweet and little corny, and the second is somewhat luder. The first story is that the Afrikaans doctor, who delivered Jacoba in Lichtenberg, was so enamoured by this beautiful child that he once told her that when she smiled, her face filled the room with more bubbles than a sink of dishes. Like I said, it's a little corny, but sweet if it's true, and a far better rendition than the other possibility, which I'll discuss a bit later. Accounts differ about when Jacoba left her mother's house. But by 1948, at 17 years old, she was living in Vereniging with a cousin as her mother's cleaning work had all but dried up, as the rich families in Lichtenberg left for the greener pastures of Johannesburg. Jacoba's mother had also allegedly developed a drinking problem of her own by this stage, I think it goes without saying that at this time in history women were rather limited as to their job choices and education was not a major priority for girls especially in poorer communities. Jacoba could read and write but by all accounts she was not extensively educated and at the age of 17 she started working as a typist in a coal agency in Verenigang. For Jacoba this job was simply a means to an end. Her mother was pressurizing her to send money home and anything that was left over after that was spent on beauty products. Having lived her entire life having her appearance pointed out as her greatest asset, Jacoba was set on investing in her looks as often as she could. It seems that she never really accepted her so-called station in life. Jacoba had dreams of becoming a movie star and marrying a rich man, so that she too could one day live in one of the houses she had seen her mother cleaning as a child. Whether or not Jacoba was aware of how deeply entrenched the class system was in her society, she didn't seem to feel that those restrictions would apply to her, and was certain that she could rise above her lot in life. I've often wondered if Jacoba's dreams were buoyed by icons like Marilyn Monroe, who started her rise to fame in 1944, although only reaching its pinnacle in the 1950s and 60s. Monroe was also from a poor background, and had used her looks to become one of the most loved, and indeed lusted after, stars in Hollywood. If we consider this, Perhaps Jacoba's dreams were not as unrealistic as they seemed, but Monroe was in the US. She had the benefits of living in a country that was moving far quicker toward an accepting environment. South Africa would be entrenched in class divisions and segregation for long after Jacoba's dreams were dead and buried. As a woman living in 2019, I find it very difficult to understand that Jacoba's greatest dream was to marry a rich man. But I guess if Jacoba was alive today, she would most likely be completely mystified that women now study and go on to live their entire lives without getting married and aren't considered aliens if they do. It wasn't long before Farinachung and the coal agency no longer held any interest for Jacoba and the bright lights of Johannesburg beckoned. At this point, I'd like to explain how I'm going to refer to people involved in this case going forward, and why I've chosen to do so. There are essentially four men whose names are linked to the last year of Jacoba's life. These men are named in full in most sources, although Xenopoulos' book gave them pseudonyms due to her work being partly fictionalized. I am going to use the men's real first names, but not their surnames. The last of these men passed away in 2014, but they all have families and descendants who have lived their entire lives under the dark cloud of this case to some extent. If there were any hope to resolution of this case, I would name them in full, but unfortunately there isn't, and after much consideration, I don't think that it's fair to put these families' names out there again. That's just my choice. But as I said, the full names are available on numerous online sources, so it's up to you if you want to explore that further. So we catch up with Jacoba in Johannesburg. She's moved there on her own. She knows no one there, which would be a pretty big thing for any 17-year-old. The irony of Jacoba appearing to be a woman who dreamt no further than a convenient marriage is that there are not many 17-year-olds today that would be mature or brave enough to move to what was then a big city on her own with zero support system. Jacoba was a strong young lady, and she was determined to elevate her station in life. Sadly, she also seemed to be quite naive and had no idea that there were predators waiting for her there. It was reported in some sources that Jacoba entered a beauty pageant when she arrived in Johannesburg called Miss Legs Johannesburg. The description of this pageant in Xenopolis' book made me cringe, and again I will state that I don't know how much of this is fact and how much is supposition. The first round of the competition allegedly involved the entrance standing behind a cardboard cutout through which only their legs were visible. Jacob made it through the round, and the next round involved her walking up and down a ramp with a paper bag over her head with eye holes cut out. This was apparently so that the judges only looked at the entrance legs as criteria for the prize. The room was filled with cheering men, and it's alleged that the only woman allowed in the hall that day were the entrants. Jacoba won the competition, and some cash along with it. Xenopolis' book describes this competition as the fateful meeting place, of one of the men that would send Jacoba's life in a different direction. Philip was a 52-year-old bookmaker. Now, to be clear, because perhaps bookmaking is not as popular a career choice now as it was in the 1940s, Philip did not make books to read. Philip arranged bets on everything from sports competitions to the Miss Legs competition. Gambling was illegal in South Africa until 1994, and as such, so were bets of any kind. I doubt, however, that this was a very heavily policed law, and Philip made a living out of it without much trouble. His job meant that he was moving in the circles of the rich and famous in Johannesburg, as, of course, those would have been the majority of people at the time who had the money to gamble or place bets. By all accounts, Philip did not come from a wealthy family, and he was also an immigrant. His ability to assist his high-powered friends with organised gambling and other vices meant he was welcomed into their circles, although he never really seemed to be seen as an equal. The sources I have read paint the relationship between Jacoba and Philip as friendly but not intimate. He was, of course, thirty-four years Jacoba's senior, and I doubt whether she would have seen him as a love interest. I think that in Jacoba, this beautiful, desirable young girl, Philip saw a meal ticket. Again, opinions differ about exactly what role Philip played in the downfall of Jacoba but it is within his clutches that she became what is known as a good-time girl. There are two terms that are frequently used to describe Jacoba, and neither are particularly flattering in their true definitions. The first is a glamour girl, which is perhaps the kinder of the two. Glamour girls were known for their beauty. They would always be beautiful young women who dressed impeccably and never had a hair out of place. Glamour girls divided their time between sitting in a beauty salon and going on formal dates with suitable gentlemen. The other term which has been used to describe Jacoba is a good time girl. Without having actually lived through the time, I gather that a good time girl was similar to a glamour girl, but with an edgier side. While a glamour girl would have lunch and dinner dates with gentlemen, She would never consume alcohol, or dance and party with them. A good time girl, on the other hand, would do all of those things. I think that this is a good time to describe the sexual properties of the 1940s. Women were expected to stay virgins until they got married. A woman's virginity was almost her most prized possession men were expected to respect this and not to expect any physical intimacy until marriage. This is what the superficial layer of sexuality looked like in the 1940s, but as with every other age in history, that was very often not the reality. While premarital sex was frowned upon, it happened all the time. It just wasn't spoken about. The men that Philip was surrounded by were wealthy, and did not mind paying to have their vices supplied. Prostitution was as real then as it is now. But I get the feeling that it was not always expected that an escort would have sex with a client. In Zinopoulos' book, Jacoba's new bookmaker friend is essentially also a pimp. He's a high-class pimp, but that's the basic explanation of what he was. Philip invited Jacoba to live with him, and he very slowly eased her into the idea of using her looks to get money. Jacoba still sees herself as a woman in search of a husband, but Philip very slowly convinces her that he can introduce her to some of the richest bachelors in Johannesburg. All she has to do is follow his every command, and she does. It is really unknown as to how deep into Philip's seedy plans Jacoba went, but she did start going on dates arranged by Philip. These dates would always be chaperoned by him, and he preferred that the men only take her on lunch dates. So in the beginning, men were basically paying Philip for the pleasure of eating a meal with the lovely Jacoba. It is alleged That once Jacoba became comfortable with this arrangement, he started getting her to dance at parties, and the allegation exists that he went as far as having her perform oral sex on some of the men. Philip had created a legend around the young girl amongst local men, and they were paying large amounts of money to spend time with her. I have no doubt that Jacoba was seeing very little of this money. If you look at how this last year of Jacoba's life developed, it is almost a classic human trafficking situation. Of course, the term didn't even exist in the 1940s, but that is really what it was. A young girl with no support system, naive and looking for a brighter future, goes to the big city where a predator spots her and convinces her that he'll look after her. He spends time winning her trust and then starts slowly suggesting how she can repay him. The evolution is so subtle and so slow that the young girl has no idea the vast pit of desolation that she is falling into until suddenly she finds herself being poured by a man in the back of a car who has paid someone else to do so. Today, the evolution is hastened by hard drugs. Addiction breeds compliance. In the 1940s, all Philip had was alcohol, and he used it. With both of her parents being alcoholics, Jacoba was genetically predisposed to the disease herself. By the time she turned 18, she was using alcohol to black out the dates she never wanted and to bring out the bubbles that everyone loved, and hide the shy Jacoba that had no place in her new life. Oh, that reminds me, this is the situation that has been reported as the other possible way that Jacoba got her nickname. It is claimed that the name Bubbles was used by Philip to perpetuate the legend of the beautiful young woman who would occasionally perform oral sex at his command. I don't think I have to paint that picture for you. This is why I will never refer to Jacoba by that nickname, because we don't know where it came from for sure, and it may well be a sweet name given to her by the doctor who delivered her, but it may also be a moniker imposed on her by a man who was essentially her slave master. Jacoba's drinking brought out a different side of her. Many reports describe her becoming angry and violent when she drank. You know, I can't think why she would have reason to be angry. It was her behaviour while drinking that eventually caused the rift between Jacoba and Philip. I can't imagine that it could have been very good for business or Philip's reputation if Jacoba was out of control on dates he arranged. It was also reported that Jacoba enjoyed driving, and when she was drunk, she would regularly and sometimes violently insist on driving her suitor's cars. Philip eventually cut his losses and asked Jacoba to move out. Jacoba moved into an apartment complex called Dorchester Mansions in Rissick Street, Johannesburg. The building had originally been built to house immigrants and had become a building of ill repute, so to speak. Jacoba shared a room there with her friend, who is referred to as Mrs. Griffin. Mrs. Griffin was a hostess. The term, in modern times, is often used to describe a woman who works at a hostess club. Or bar, which is very common in Asian countries. The concept is that men go to hostess clubs where they're assigned a particular hostess or multiple ones, and these women attend to the men throughout the night, bringing them drinks and having conversations with them. It is widely believed that in many hostess clubs you get what you pay for, and there are ladies who will attend to your sexual needs if that's what you want. I can't say this for sure, because I have very little information about the subject, but I tend to think that the concept was not very different in the 1940s. We may at this point wonder why Jacobo would have chosen to move out of Philip's house and into a building where many untoward things were going on at all times. I think the real question here is, what choice did she have? The only people she would have met in Johannesburg by that time would have been through Philip. None of the rich men she had spent time with were going to house an immigrant girl whose reputation had been set by Philip, and she had absolutely no family there. Jacoba also still had it very firmly set in her mind that she was going to be able to find a husband within the circle she was moving. So, going back to Lichtenberg to live with her mother was out of the question. Dorchester Mansion still stands today. It has a relatively seedy history, with two Hungarian brothers having purchased it in the 1980s, only to turn it into an adult nightclub. Today, it is again a residential building, with rooms being hired out for 4,000 rand a month. The building now appears on the Heritage Register. Having been built in 1930, the building is 89 years old. If those walls could talk, can you imagine the tales that they would tell about South African history? Jacoba attended a party on Wednesday the 10th of August 1949. It was a meeting at this party that would change the trajectory of her life also at the party, was Morris, a 21-year-old man from a wealthy family. Morris and Jacoba hit it off, and it's alleged that she spent some time alone with him at his home later in the evening. The next day, Morris telephoned his friend David, also 21 years old and from a wealthy family, and boasted about his evening with Jacoba. He invited David to accompany him to Dorchester mansions to visit Jacoba that afternoon. During the visit, the three made plans to go out that evening. Jacoba would invite her friend Penny to join them. After the men left, Jacoba went to Philip's house to visit. She drank a few brandies with the man. I can imagine that she probably used the opportunity to excitedly chat about her date with Morris and David that evening. Jacoba seems to have gotten carried away at Philip's house, both in terms of time and brandy consumption, because by the time she arrived back to Dorchester mansions, it's reported that Morris and David were both already waiting at the flat for her and were none too pleased to see that she was late and a little under the weather. Jacoba did her best to placate the men, and tried to quell her nervousness as she noticed that her friend Penny had not arrived as arranged, and she would need to entertain both the men that night on her own. She put on a green dress, fixed her makeup, and then announced that she was ready to the two waiting men. The plan was to head out to David's house, which was situated in the then upper crusty Lovo. David's parents were in Durban where they had businesses running, and the young men had the house all to themselves. While David's parents were away, his cousin Hyman, a year younger than David, was staying with them. I've looked at historical photographs of David's parents' house, and even for the 1940s, it was imposing. I can only imagine that Jacoba's eyes must have been popping out of her head, at the opulence that no doubt surrounded her, and counting her lucky stars, that she was now a guest in the type of house her mother used to clean. The three arrived at the house at eight o'clock in the evening, and as they were pulling in, David's cousin Hyman was leaving the house to collect his girlfriend. David and Morris invited him to bring his girlfriend back to the house and join in the party. But Hyman declined, saying he had promised his girlfriend that he would take her to the movies. He left, leaving the two young men and Jacoba alone in the large house. The trio reportedly drank alcohol and listened to records while David's housekeeper prepared dinner for them. They ate a starter of tender asparagus soup, a main of lamb chops and potato chips, and a dessert. Of Tin Peaches. When I read this, I frowned, because it's not exactly the type of meal I would expect to see served in such an opulent house. But I guess it's like kids eating takeaways when their parents aren't home. The two boys were only very slightly out of their teens, and I think it'll be agreed that 21 year old boys are still very much like teenagers, in general terms. It was later claimed by Morris that he could see before and during the dinner that David and Jacoba were getting along very well, and he began to feel like the odd one out. Morris left David's house shortly after they had finished eating. David and Jacoba, left alone, cleared up the lounge area where they'd been visiting earlier and went to the upper level of the house to continue drinking and listen to music. David would later report that they hadn't been upstairs for very long when Morris telephoned the house and asked to speak to Jacoba. David said that he had tried to give them space to have a conversation, but Jacoba had beckoned him to the phone after about 15 minutes of talking to Morris. She handed the telephone to David and he says that Morris had apologized for calling and interrupting their evening and then hung up. Around midnight, David's cousin Hyman returned from his date with his girlfriend. He later said that David had approached him and said that Jacoba was in his bedroom, but she had consumed a significant amount of alcohol and he was worried that she would pass out on his bed. David asked Hyman to try and convince Jacoba that the party was over and it was time to go home. Hyman says that when he went upstairs and found Jacoba, Although intoxicated, she was not near the passing out stage that his cousin had claimed. He tried to convince her that it was time to go home, and she asked for one last brandy, which he supplied. Eventually, around one thirty in the morning, Jacoba said that she was ready to go. David had planned on dropping her off at home, but when she walked out into the driveway, she got into Hyman's car and the men claim that she refused to get out, so Hyman had told David that he would drop off at home. They set off in the direction of Dorchester Mansions. David recalls before the pair drove off that Jacoba had started to complain that she wanted to drive, and Hyman was arguing with her. About 20 minutes later, David says that Hyman returned to his house without Jacoba, and told David, that the young woman was a lunatic and that she had demanded to be allowed to drive and when he wouldn't let her, she told him to stop and had gotten out of the car. David claims to have been shocked at his cousin's behaviour and demanded to know where he had let her out. Hyman said that he had left her at the Dunkeld bus terminus and he had seen her start walking toward Oxford Road before she had disappeared into the night Hyman claims Jacoba shouted back at him, don't be surprised if you read about my corpse in newspapers tomorrow. David claims that he went driving around to see if he could find Jacoba, but found no trace of her and returned home, hoping that she had arrived home safely. The distance between the place where Hyman claims to have dropped Jacoba off and Dorchester Mansions is 5.9 kilometres. It would have taken an hour and a half to walk that distance, but David claims that he drove the route within minutes of her being dropped off, and there was no sign of her. Although Jacoba's mother still lived in Lichtenberg, it appears that Jacoba had invited her to visit in Johannesburg, because the next day, Morris, claiming no knowledge of the previous night's events, had gone to Dorchester Mansions to see Jacoba. At her flat, he found only Jacoba's mother, who said that she had not seen her daughter since the night before. Morris phoned David at work, and he explained what had happened the night before. Morris told David that Jacoba had not made it home. David went to Jacoba's flat, and he, Morris, and Jacoba's mother went to Rosebank Police Station to file a missing persons report. David also phoned the main hospital in the area to see if Jacoba had been admitted there. Eighteen-year-old Jacoba Schroeder was officially missing for thirty hours when her body was found by a passing labourer, Samuel Morbella. Jacoba was found laying on her back in a previously burnt-out field at the Birdhaven Plantation. The plantation is less than a kilometre from where Hyman claimed to have last seen Jacoba. Her body was about thirty metres from the road, and her face was turned to the right. Her left leg was placed over her right leg, and her left arm was pressed up against her body, while her right arm was stretched out at a 75-degree angle to her body. Her hat, shoes, and coat were missing. The scene seemed almost staged, as there were no footprints or drag marks around her body nor signs that a struggle had occurred there. Jacoba had been killed elsewhere and seemingly carried to this high foot traffic area and placed in the middle of the field to be found. There was bruising and scratch marks on Jacoba's neck. Her feet, despite having no shoes on, were clean. A further indication that she did not walk to this field herself and wherever her shoes were, was likely the place that she was killed in. Dr. J. Friedman, the Johannesburg district surgeon, performed the autopsy on Jacoba. He noted that the bodice of her dress was slightly ripped and her stockings were torn. The right-hand side of her panties had also been torn, but Jacoba had not been sexually assaulted. In fact, Dr. Friedman determined that Jacoba Schroeder was a virgin at the time of her death. The autopsy revealed that handfuls of a clay-like substance had been forced into Jacoba's mouth after she died. There was no sign of the substance in her lungs, so the doctor was certain she had not been breathing when the clay was put into her mouth. A pile of a similar substance was found near Jacoba's body. An interesting discovery was made during Jacoba's autopsy. It was determined that the girl suffered from a disorder of the thymus gland which could cause her to fall unconscious quite easily with the slightest amount of pressure to her neck. The thymus gland is an organ which sits just below the breastbone. It is part of the endocrine system and produces T-cells which helped to fight disease and cancer. I looked into the disorders of the thymus gland and discovered that the disorder that Jacoba must have been suffering from was called thymus hyperplasia, which is basically an enlarged thymus gland. When the gland is enlarged, it presses into the airway, so it is far easier to cut off the oxygen supply to a person with an enlarged thymus. There are many reports of infants dying without any pressure being applied to their necks when they suffer from an enlarged thymus gland, as the gland simply becomes so large that it completely restricts the airway. Jacoba's death was definitely not accidental though, even though she had this condition. The district surgeon, determined from the bruising on her neck, that she had most likely been strangled from behind with some sort of ligature. Perhaps her enlarged thymus was simply a blessing in disguise, as she would not have been aware of her fate for very long before losing consciousness. Her time of death was determined as around two o'clock on the morning she went missing. Police launched a large-scale search in the area around Birdhaven even searching private residences in the hopes of locating Jacoba's missing belongings, but nothing was ever found. Jacoba's stomach contents confirmed the timeline that David, Morris and Hyman had given for the evening. In Hyman and David's statements, they both agreed that Hyman had left the premises with Jacoba at 1.30 that morning. The bus terminus where Jacoba was allegedly dropped off was less than 500 metres from David's house as the crow flies and probably no more than a kilometre by road. This means that it would have taken just minutes for the enraged Jacoba to have Harmon pull over and leap out of the car. Let's call it five minutes. Then they argued for maybe another five minutes until Jacoba stormed off and Hyman returned to the house. David said that Hyman was gone for at least 20 minutes. Jacoba's dream had always been to become famous, and sadly, in death, she achieved that dream. The story of the beautiful glamour girl murdered and dumped and the mystery that surrounded the possible involvement of young men from very wealthy families, captivated the country and even the world. The police were under pressure to prove that they were properly investigating the girl's murder and not allowing the influence of the men's families to sway their judgment. And so, two months after the body of Jacoba Schroeder was found, Hyman and David were arrested and charged with her murder. The young men appeared in court for their bail hearings, and newspapers as far afield as Adelaide, Australia, reported that they had been granted bail. Hyman's bail was 5,000 South African pounds, and David's bail was 500 South African pounds, indicating that prosecutors believed that Hyman was the main perpetrator in the crime, and David was perhaps an accessory after the fact. Just a quick aside here regarding the currency I just mentioned. With South Africa still being a British colony at the time, our currency was the equivalent of the British pound. The South African rand only came into circulation in 1961 and amazingly debuted at the exchange rate of just two rand to a pound. I also did a quick exercise to see how much 5,000 South African pound would equate to in today's money, and it would be a staggering £163,000 or 300,000 rands. I can only assume that the authorities, quite rightly, believed that Hyman could have been a significant flight risk, as his family were immigrants and they were very wealthy. I looked into the types of bail amounts set for murder charges in recent cases in South Africa and they vary widely. I assume that the judge would take the accused person's own financial status into account, as the amount has to be significant enough to that person to make them think twice about fleeing. Some of the amounts I found for publicised murder cases ranged from 10,000 rand to 1 million rand for Oscar Pistorius' bail although he only ended up paying a 100000 of that in cash and the balance was guaranteed. The state's case against Hyman and David was purely circumstantial. There was no physical evidence to point to either of the men being involved in her murder. They were admittedly the last people to see her before she met her death, and the police painted the following scenario, of what they believe happened in those early hours of Jacoba's last day on earth. The police believe that when Hyman had driven away from the house with Jacoba in his car, it was in his mind that he was going to have sex with her. They allege that he drove to the Birdhaven plantation and pulled off the road, attempting to convince her to have sex with him. When she refused and tried to get away, it's alleged that Hyman strangled her to death with a scarf and then carried her body to the middle of the plantation where it would be found city hours later. There are a few problems with this theory though. If both Jacoba and Hyman were in the front of the car during their tussle, how did he get into the back seat of the car behind Jacoba to strangle her and why would he do that? I don't know if they did height tests against the bruising on Jacoba's neck, but if they did, perhaps they could have determined whether she could have actually been standing when she was grabbed from behind and strangled, if they could determine that this was possible. Perhaps then they could identify how tall the perpetrator would have had to have been to have strangled her in this manner. The other major problem with this theory is that it's reported that the Birdhaven Plantation had high foot traffic on a daily basis. If Jacoba's body had been in the plantation from the time of her death, why did it take 30 hours for someone to find her? This was during the week, when people would have been travelling to and from work. The movements of Hyman in the days after Jacoba was reported missing are not recorded anywhere so I guess it is possible that he had her body in the boot of his car and then dumped it there just before she was found. The police seem to have done a pretty decent job of investigating here though, so I would assume that they would have searched both Hyman and David's vehicles, and although this was not a bloody murder, if they checked the boot, it would be strange to find hairs in there that matched Jacoba's. This theory could work in principle if Hyman was not alone in the car. I don't know whether police were able to verify whether David definitely stayed behind when Hyman went to drop Jacoba off at home. It is possible that his housekeepers could have testified to the fact that he remained behind. However, what if he didn't? It is entirely possible that David got into the back seat of Hyman's vehicle after Jacoba refused to get out of the passenger seat. Could they have been driving and Jacoba tried to gain control of the vehicle in one of her bids to drive? Could David have grabbed her from the seat behind to try and control her and when, due to her enlarged thymus, she lost consciousness very quickly, he became afraid and strangled her to death? So this is the scene that I'm picturing. Jacoba announces her desire to go home, and as she's had a bit to drink, she forgets her coat and hat and walks out the front door of David's house. She gets into the first car she sees, or perhaps the one she prefers, which happens to be Hyman's. After a bit of discussion, with David trying to convince Jacoba to get into his car instead, David gives up, grabs the girl's coats and hats from the house, and climbs into the back of Hyman's car. Perhaps Jacoba didn't give up her insistence that she wanted to drive, and tried to get control of the vehicle, and when David strangled her, it was with the sleeve of her coat, which was in the back seat with him, an item which would probably leave similar marks to a scarf. The tearing of her clothing could have been either from the struggle or from the men trying to carry her. This is all supposition though and just a scene that developed in my mind as I read through my research. David and Hyman were both represented by a lawyer called Israel Meisels. Meisels was arguably one of the best defense attorneys in South Africa at the time. In 1961, Meisels represented Nelson Mandela and 90 other defendants in the so-called treason trial. One of the theories put forward by the defence was that Jacoba must have been killed by a passing African man because of the lime found in her throat. It was claimed that in certain African cultures, lime or soil will be placed into the mouth of a person who has suffered a violent death to prevent them speaking ill of the killer in the afterlife. I could not find any information about this practice in my research, and I have no idea whether it is factual or not. If we consider what happened in 1948 in South Africa, though, I think we can completely discount this theory. In 1948, the system of apartheid was implemented in South Africa. When Jacoba's murder occurred in 1949, there were pass laws and movement restrictions in place for all people of colour. There would not have been a single African person in Ilovo that night. A crime journalist who covered this trial for the Argus, called Benjamin Bennett, had a third theory. He believed that shortly after Jacoba got out of Hyman's car that night, she hitched a ride from a passing motorist. Bennett said that if there were two men in the vehicle, one would have got out and sat in the back seat to allow Jacoba to sit in the front. This unknown man could then have proceeded to strangle Jacoba from behind, as the district surgeon said had occurred. The lime could have been put in her throat to confuse police. While we can't really discount this theory, Jacoba's time of death was determined as being 2 o'clock in the morning, just 30 minutes after she and Hyman had left David's house. If she had gotten out of Hyman's car at 1.35 or even 1.40, that means that she was picked up, murdered and dumped within 20 minutes of Hyman last seeing her. The timeline seems very tight to me for a stranger to pick her up and almost immediately kill her. It is absolutely a possibility, though. There is, of course, a third player in this case, who was not arrested or charged, but was present for at least part of the night on which Jacoba died. Morris. I don't know what sort of evidence verified Morris's whereabouts, but he certainly seems to have had a motive to have wanted to harm Jacoba. He was jealous that she had seemingly chosen David over him. We know he left the house because he phoned David's home, but do we know what his movements were after that? Is it possible that Morris, restless and unable to quell his annoyance, had got back in his vehicle and driven the streets of the neighbourhood he shared with David? Had he come across Jacoba walking on the side of the road? The circumstantial evidence brought against the men by the state was insufficient though and Hyman and David were acquitted of Jacoba's murder and set free. There was no further investigation into the crime after this and Jacoba Schroeder was buried in an unmarked pauper's grave at plot 519 at Benoni Cemetery. Despite her brief life, and coming from a poor background, Jacoba Schroeder made her mark on history. The mystery of the murder of the young, beautiful and vulnerable girl became a South African legend, and it has been picked up by writers, artists, filmmakers and the like through the years. In 1961, a filmmaker, Pia Buerta, released the Afrikaans film The Bubble schroeder Story. It was initially banned in South Africa, but eventually it was allowed to be screened to audiences over the age of 18. In 2012, Rala Zinopoulos published her partially fictional account of the story of Jacoba Schroeder, entitled Bubbles, and in the same year, forensic artist Catherine Smith put together an exhibition at the AOP Gallery in Johannesburg, entitled The Incident Room. The exhibition was a compilation of documents, photographs, and pieces of evidence relating to Jacobus Schroeder's life, death, and the murder trial which followed. I also came across an Afrikaans podcast called Spura, which covers Jacoba's case. You can find that podcast on Google Podcasts. The story of how Rala Zanopoulos came to write Jacoba's story is a very interesting one, and certainly worth sharing. I got most of this information off Rala's website, which I will reference in the show notes. When Rala Zanopoulos was 19, she went on a date. The young man had an interesting pickup line, Rala relates, that he got a little drunk and told her that his father was a murderer. He went on to relate the story of Jacoba Schroeder. Rala, understandably, does not say whether this young man was the son of David or Hyman, and she never did have a second date with him. But the story stuck in her mind. Rala says something in her explanation of why the story stuck in her mind that really resonates with me, and I think not only explains why Jacoba's story stuck in my own mind, but why her story is relevant even today. She says, quote, I remember thinking, he's making it up. It wasn't his father. And this is a film I've seen, a magazine article I've read. And the story has always held that for me, a sense of familiarity. A sense of a theme revisited and revisiting. Because we do this in society. We allow men to rape and murder young girls and get away with it. I have a theory that if a man is rich and good-looking, he can kill a woman. He can get away with it. We just keep seeing it all over the world. End quote. After that date, Rola did some superficial research into the case. She spoke to her parents and others in her community, and they knew the story well. And then she says that she forgot about Jacoba, until 2009, when the story returned to her mind. Rola began to write and immersed herself in the 1940s. She started to receive letters from people all over the world who had lived the story, or who had parents who did. Rolla says that only one person she spoke to ever said that they thought the young men who had been charged were innocent. Interestingly, she says that the woman she had spoken to, that had been in the same age group as Jacoba during that same time, had all expressed that they felt that she had brought her murder upon herself. One lady said, What did she expect? Going to a house with three boys. It was the 1940s. Girls did not go to houses with three boys. While victim shaming is a pet peeve of mine, I can understand that these women had grown up in a very different time. But the truth is that we do this to victims even today. She was walking in the street. What did she expect? She was taking drugs. It's her own fault. She was wearing a short skirt, you know. And let us not go too far into the feminist theme, because we do it to male victims too. He should have just given them his keys. Then he wouldn't have been shot. He was drunk. He probably started the fight. And so we continue, explaining the horrendous actions of human beings against other human beings by assigning blame equally because maybe then it'll make us all feel better, and maybe it will make it less horrible, and we stay stuck in the mindset of the 1940s. There's a less scientific, more paranormal side to this case as well, which I thought I'd touch on for interest's sake. When Rolla was writing the book, she got to the point where she had to kill off Jacoba, and because she had no idea how she'd actually died, She felt it too large a piece to fictionalize, so she decided to visit a psychic medium. The following is the message that the psychic claimed to have received from Jacoba Schroeder. I was born at a time when no one heard me, and sometimes it's better not to be heard. But you've given me a voice. The medium recounted that Jacoba had said that the book Rolla was writing would not be for her as her life was over, but it would be for all the young girls who in current times find themselves on dangerous dates and things go wrong and they're too ashamed to speak about it. Rolla said that the medium had said things about the book and the process that she had followed in writing it that she could not have known. The other paranormal connection to this case is that it is believed that the ghost of Jacoba Schroeder haunts the Aurora House in Central Avenue, Houghton. The three young men involved in the last hours of Jacoba's life continued on with theirs and went on to live long and seemingly successful lives. I say seemingly because there were some blips along the way. Morris went on to take over his father's company in 1985, and in March 1999, Morris, 69 years old at the time, appeared in Johannesburg Magistrates' Court, the same court his two friends appeared in, exactly 50 years before. Morris was not on trial, though. He was called to testify in an inquiry into the death of one of his employees, Lawrence Benjus. Bengiss worked for Morris's company as an accountant, and in 1994 he was found dead in his car near the Oriental Plaza, having sustained five gunshot wounds. A few days before his death. Bengis had told his wife that he had uncovered evidence of fraud at Morris's company. I was unable to find any further information on the outcome of the inquiry. But indeed, there seems to have been no ramifications for Morris or his company, and Morris passed away peacefully on the 13th of March, 2014, at the ripe old age of 85. In 2002, another of the men found himself back in court at the age of 74. David was by this time a multi-millionaire, and on his third wife, who was suing him for maintenance. David was ordered to pay his then ex-wife 30,000 rand a month in maintenance for a son born of their marriage. His third wife was 30 years younger than him. At the time of his appearing in court, David was the director of 12 companies. He passed away four years later, at the age of 78. As I said in the beginning of this episode, I know that there is no more hope of justice for Jacoba Schroeder. In fact, we cannot even really say that we have a definite idea of which theory fits the evidence more closely, because there is so little evidence. All we know is that a young girl whose greatest wish in life was to find a man who would give her a better life, had found herself in deeper water than she had bargained for. I believe that Jacoba had gone with those young men that night, because her friend had not shown up to go with, and she felt powerless to turn the men away. I think that she saw at least one of the men as potential husband material, but the truth was that neither one of those men would ever have seen Jacoba as a future wife. She was a fine girl, one whose legend had been built up in social circles by Philip. They were probably prepared for an evening of drinking and revelry. I don't think that either one of them expected Jacoba to die that night, and whether her death ended up being at their hands will never be confirmed. What we do know, though, is that Jacoba did not deserve to have her life ended that night, no matter how naive she had been, no matter how many mistakes she had made. Jacoba Schroeder should have woken up the next morning in her bed with a headache from her brandy consumption, but not any worse for wear. She didn't, though. She closed her eyes with someone's hands around her neck and never opened them again. In an interview about her book, Rolla Zinopoulos tells a journalist that while she was researching, one of the men involved was still alive and she managed to contact him. She said to him that the whole incident must have had a terrible effect on him. Rolla says that the man answered with a simple no. Just no. The murder of an 18-year-old and the accusations that surrounded it had no effect on him. I guess you can't fault the man for being honest, because honestly... The tragic death doesn't seem to have had much of an effect on the lives of any of the men accused of being involved. Nothing. Her life and death were just a blip on the radar in their privileged lives. There's some irony here, though, because as rich as those men lived to become, as old as they had the honour of growing, even with their many children and grandchildren, They are not the ones being remembered. Jacoba is. David, Morris, and Hyman didn't have any films made about their lives. They didn't have any books written about them or art collections assembled around their lives. Jacoba Schroeder did. She only got 18 years on earth. She was an immigrant. She was poor and she had very little success in her days on earth. But it is her memory that continues to be celebrated throughout history, not theirs. So maybe that's a small amount of justice for Jacoba, for all the injustices she suffered. Thank you for listening to the story of the unsolved murder of Jacoba Schroeder. I will list all my sources in the show notes and I'll also leave a link for you to purchase Ryla Zinopoulos' book in the show notes too. Before I finish off, I'd like to chat to you about another true crime podcast that I've come across that I think you'll enjoy. It's called Morbidology and the host is Emily G. Thompson, who is a true crime author. The podcast is really well presented and I think that if you like our format, you'll enjoy Morbidologies too. Here's Emily to tell you more about her show.
1: Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases, Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using audio from 911 calls, interrogations, trial testimony and interviews, Morbidology takes a look at some of the most mysterious and disturbing crimes from all across the world. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, homeless bathing gone terribly wrong. From shocking murders to missing children, we focus on a variety of cases and put you, the listener, right into the middle of the investigation. Listen to Morbidology now on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: And that is it for episode 8, ladies and gentlemen. I really hope you enjoyed our little sojourn into the 1940s. If you liked this episode, please remember to subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the podcast app you use. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Most of our case discussions happen on Facebook, but I always post on all of the social media forums when I release a new episode. So that's another way to make sure you don't miss any of our content. Once again, thank you for listening and for all your support. And I'll chat to you in our next episode.